0: Balper and the team on of Brass, from Carson Sestouli. This is FanGraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of FanGraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is the managing editor of FanGraphs, Dave Cameron. It has become uh, custom around here to say that uh, that every week Dave Cameron analyzes all of baseball. However, it's also fair to say that Dave Cameron himself uh, is an honest sort, and that if he had uh, one thing in common with our first president, uh, it's that he would never tell a lie. If he had two things in common. Of course, it would be that he wears a wig. Uh, quite often, but that's uh, neither here nor there at the moment. Um, right, so uh, with regard to Dave Cameron's honesty, I, I posed a question to him uh, towards the end of this recording. I said, Cameron, how much uh, how much baseball do you think uh, you've analyzed today? And, and this is what he had to say.
1: Uh, it feels like I only analyzed like 93% of baseball. Before.
0: The very picture of honesty, as I say. Uh, so far as the 93% of baseball, Cameron does cover much of that and uh, what follows uh, concerns projections, teams beating projections players living up to their projections rookies and their projections uh, etc 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 it is fangraphs audio it features managing editor dave cameron it begins right now
1: of the ship and uh, fixed him to some kind of picture of a sailor. Uh, Rob Nyer was turned into a lounge singer and uh, was doing some kind of karaoke. I was turned into a blackjack dealer. I think Bill James was uh, reclining in a
0: hot tub. Oh, wow. Well, that's something that I would uh, pay money to see.
1: uh, I would pay money to unsee that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, that's amusing. And it was on some sort of hot stove?
1: Yeah, it was like their morning show. I think they're just doing like a rundown of the news, and they were, you know, they got to the promotion of the Saber Analytics Conference and did it with a little tongue in cheek.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Well, that's good, I guess, for the Saber Analytics Conference that it's uh, uh, being invoked on, on the MLB Network.
1: Correct. I think the uh, the guys over there are recognizing that it's uh, you know something worth promoting for baseball fans who want to go to Arizona, and you know, I especially like this year that it's actually the same weekend as the. Uh, Pool B play in Phoenix. So if you are interested in such a thing, you can go to Phoenix for the analytics conference and then go see WBC game that night, which I think is a pretty good doubleheader.
0: Yeah, that uh, that sounds it absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. I'm excited. I, I think I've mentioned this before. I'm excited for the the Dutch team uh, with its half dozen shortstops.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, a very tall Lok von Neel.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. I I think extraordinarily tall, right? Was six about seven foot one. Oh, that's very tall. That's even taller than yeah. I was assuming. That that would be uh were he to make the majors, that would be the tallest mutual league ever?
1: Yeah, I believe so. But I don't think he's
0: really. Okay. Um is there any wait, do we know um this actually would be a research type question, uh if there is any correlation uh, at least among among major leaguers, between between height and velocity, or height and anything.
1: Yeah, there, I think there's an assumption that there's a strong correlation between height and velocity, mainly because Randy Johnson threw really hard, so people are like, ah, oh, tall guy must throw hard. But I think every time I've seen it studied, there's a very weak correlation at best. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of like six seven, six eight pitchers that are soft tossers. I mean, John Alamo was like six seven and he threw 86 miles an hour. Uh, Jeff Juden was pretty tall. And didn't throw very hard. Chris Young, you know, six ten throws eighty eight. Uh, I think there's more tall guys who are not hard throwers who get by because they have the extension and they can hide the ball a little bit longer, and their you know effective release point is closer to the plate. Uh, so they don't need to throw a hundred. <laughs> and and, and if you can be six ten and throw a hundred. I'm sure that's the best in the world. But um, I don't know that there's actually a uh, a lot of evidence for the fact that tall pitchers do throw harder.
0: Right. Uh, so. It would be uh, apparent velocity, I guess, is the is the real advantage.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, essentially, the fact that you know they can release the ball closer to the plate makes 88 look more like ninety one. Um, so I think that there's also probably some selection bias, just in the fact that there's not a lot of guys who throw hard, and there's not a lot of guys who are six ten. but than there's the airport, probably not a lot of guys who can do both. You uh, basically have long odds of being either super tall or throwing really hard, so you're picking from a very small pool anyway and right. you know a lot of guys were 6'10" played professional basketball
0: instead. yeah i guess yeah you'd be you'd be picked out or um or, or or have health problems i assume because it's not always a great height for people to be
1: right yeah and there's uh, the gigantism disease that uh, you know causes early death i think
0: right yeah early death is um, that's one of the worst kinds of death you really want to yeah. you want a late you want it to be uh, you want a tardy death really right um yeah. Well, uh cheery conversation. I think that cheery <laughs> note. Uh let's uh let's uh, look um let's look to the pages of fingers right now. Well, first of all, Cameron, I wanted to ask you uh what percentage of baseball you you had plans to um to analyze during this edition of the podcast.
1: Well, I mean, you know, like what kind of baseball is actually going on right now? Are we going to analyze the uh reporting the camp of certain people of Pablo Sandoval being overweight once again? Uh, you know, is that a report?
0: Uh, guy, Sorry. is that a report from 2007? Is that where that, that's coming from? It's a, it's
1: a report from every year. I think yeah. every season, Pablo Sandoval shows up 40 pounds overweight. The Giants complain about it. He loses 10 pounds, but he hits pretty well anyway. was like an annual tradition.
0: Yeah, right. And actually, I mean, he did. Um, well, let's see. I mean, he did play uh, recently. He was playing with Magallanes or Magallanes in uh, Venezuela, and uh, I think performed. He performed like he he performed like Pablo Sandoval.
1: Yeah, I think there was some quote from Bruce Bochy the other day saying there's a difference between being in, like, game shape and baseball shape, and, uh, like, maybe he's in good enough shape to play in games, but he's not in good enough shape to... I think it's more of an endurance question, is kind of what they're saying. Like, we expect that you can hit the ball in this day, but can you play five days in a row without getting tired?
0: Right, right. Um, Yeah, okay. So you wrote today today with regard to... Of course, this is uh, projection season, I guess, and... Um, which I, I think is nice for a couple reasons. One, because it's usually heralds the coming of the season, uh, the coming of the actual uh, actual playing. Uh, it's exciting for nerds because it's it's an opportunity uh, to see uh, algorithms and regression in action, uh, which is fun. And it, of course, it's it's good for all manner of fans because um, well, cer- certainly. Uh, of fans of specific teams because they can rail against uh, the projections. Or if there's a particularly good projection, uh, like for – like the Zips projection for Mike Zanino, I think, which places him at something above three wins, uh, and in which it should be noted, uh, uh, Dan Dan Zamborski, whose uh, mass computer uh, produced that projection, does not necessarily have a lot of faith in it. But that's a different story. In any case, it heralds the coming of the season. It has – there's a lot of numbers – uh, but you looked at, in particular today, uh, the uh, projections for um, the White Sox and, in particular, uh, the degree to which they've outperformed their projections, specifically their Pocota projections. I'll say that. Why don't you sum up, uh, start from there?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think over the last few years, basically started in 2005 when I think Pocota projected the White Sox to be a 500 team and they won the World Series. And so uh, the – Beat writers in Chicago basically took that as a, an opportunity to start lambasting statistical analysis and start pointing out how ridiculous it is because they disagreed with the production at the, end, at the beginning of the season and it proved to be incorrect at the end of the season. So the confirmation bias kicks in and they decide, oh, well, I thought that the production was stupid. This projection was wrong, therefore I'm right. And so now every year they write a projection that says, or they write a column that says the Dakotas are out. Dakotas are stupid. <laughs> you know, I, might not be my favorite projection system, but the post is more about not really defending Pecota. Baseball reflectors can do that if they want, uh, but more about just talking about projections and why the White Sox have been able to outperform, you know, even a good projection system what they would have expected, uh, and kind of you know to segue into a conversation about how we should view projection systems and kind of their their error bars or their you know variation on both sides of the mean projection. Uh, and what a you know what a projection should mean to a reader.
0: Right. Well, so I think if any if any one team uh, uh, has sort of had a relationship with it, or that team's you know fans and writers have had a relationship with Pocota, it is at the White Sox because or I should say it is the White Sox because I think there was also another season, um, and this was maybe uh, the White Sox coming off of a of a of a World Series of the World Series victory. I think the next season they were projected to be about five hundred, and I think. Uh, and, of course, the uh, the b writers railed against that projection, and then that that was borne out to be entirely correct, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it was actually a 72-90 and 90 projection, maybe in, like, 2007 or something. It was one of those years um, where Pakoda, again, said that the, the White Sox were going to be terrible, and I think they almost, like, nailed it on the money here. We're off by a win or two or something. Like, uh, there have been years where Pakoda's been very wrong about the White Sox and years where they've been pretty right. On the whole, though, they've been more wrong. I think, you know, over the eight-year span – uh, that was discussed. The uh, White Sox outperformed that the of projection by e 57 wins or 56 wins. we an average of about seven per season, uh, and I thought you know that's significant enough that we should at least try and ask why they're doing it rather than just assume that the model's broken.
0: Right, and uh, it seems to have something to do with well, first of all, uh, uh, some sort of uh, performance above and beyond their um, uh, what we what, what I think is probably now the most accurate measure of. Um, wins based on runs allowed and runs scored, which is a Pythagorean pat expectation, uh, their winning percentage. Right. And then it has a lot to do, perhaps even more so to do, uh, with pitcher health.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about this with Rick Hahn a couple of years ago when we had him as a guest at one of our uh, Fangraphs spring training meetup things. Uh, and, you know, I think he said even then they really viewed Don Cooper and Herb Schneider as uh, their you know, uh, team trainer as really the catalyst to their success. I mean, these guys had manage to keep their pitchers remarkably healthy, much healthier than uh, other teams have been able to keep their pitchers. And when you're not cycling through replacement-level arms, trying to match together innings, that you were expecting to give to an above-average, all-star quality arm, that can even have a huge difference on your, on your pitching staff. And uh, it can even, you know, roll over into the bullpen if you don't have a guy who's going four innings and having to burn up all your relief arms. Uh, just being able to keep, you know, Mark Burley and Gavin Floyd and Joseph Contreras and all these guys, you know, even Freddie Garcia when he was in Chicago was pretty healthy, uh subsequently it was completely broken down. But you know, when he was under Don Cooper's a two hundred inning horse, uh the White Sox have just, you know, made a habit out of having four, sometimes even five pitchers who just, you know, pitch every day and don't get hurt. And, you know, that makes a huge difference. And I think no projection system in the world is gonna be able to forecast uh that a team's gonna have, you know, no pitcher injuries or very few pitcher injuries. And so when you have something that you know, it's this this difference? I think, you know, we calculated maybe even a three-win difference per year. Uh, that's a pretty substantial gap.
0: Now, okay, so do we know why this is happening with the White Sox, what Don Cooper and or the training staff are doing?
1: Well, not really. <laughs> they won't talk about what well, this is specifics. I mean, they've made, you know, kind of general overtures to things like mechanics and throwing programs and some of it's certainly selection. So I think, you know, with Cooper's influence, they're probably picking pitchers that they think are – more likely to stay healthy than, you know, a guy with mechanics or some kind of uh, routine that they, they're not a fan of. Um, so I think that there's probably a combination of a- identifying pitchers who are going to be able to stay healthy, like, you know, they were the ones that found Mark and then also, you know, they're teaching something that seems to be working.
0: Okay, so we know, uh, for example, we know uh, v- via projections and via other um, methods, We you know, we know how to assign wins. Um, to players right we can we can say this player is worth x number of wins uh, above replacement um, uh, and we also uh, you know um, with some level of accuracy um, can assign dollar amounts uh, to those wins right so generally speaking uh you know i think that you know in, in recent years we've been around something like four and a half or five million dollars per win uh, it's it's possible that uh, given the amount of revenue or tv revenue in the game that that number will increase or has increased already. Um, Here's the question, though. Knowing what we know about um, evaluating players based on wins above replacement, knowing what we know about the value of the wins, can we assign uh, numbers, both in terms of wins and dollar amounts, to essentially this, what the the White Sox have done over the last, I think it was seven years you you mentioned?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if we say – I mean, you know, we'd have to regret it some. If we look at it and say we think that, you know, over the last few years, uh, you know, Cooper and Schneider and whoever's been involved in the, you know, health program with the White Sox pitchers have saved them, you know, on average two or three wins uh, above replacement level based strictly on disabled list avoidance. And this doesn't even get into decreased performance from pitching through injuries or, you know, the extra innings and all the um, – you know, the carryover effects of the bullpen, if we just look at Dave on the DL uh, and we assume that it's somewhere between two and three wins, you go back over an eight, you know, 10-year period, uh, you know, even back before we had some pretty significant inflation over the last few years, there was a dead period when the economy was not doing so well. You know, dollar per win has been around $4 million for a little while. Um, and if we're assuming two to three wins, I mean, this is almost, you know, probably $10 million per year. Every year that Cooper's been there, uh, you know, maybe a little less than that, you know, Ten years ago, when the when the prices were a little lower, but probably more than that now, uh, you know, if we can even regress that in the future and say let's split it between Cooper and Schneider, and then assume that there's probably some good luck in there, we're identifying a selection bias. Anyway, maybe we say that they're only worth you know five million dollars instead of ten. And we cut it in half, but still, you know, if you split up fifty fifty, that's two and a half million dollars per year for a pitching coach and a trainer. I, I don't know how much Don Schneider or Don Cooper and Herm Schneider make. It's less than that. I d I don't think they're getting two and a half million dollars per year. Uh and you know, I think there might be some uh argument to be made that this is a little bit of an arbitrage thing where some, you know, smart teams should go hire Don Cooper and give him five million dollars a year and have him implement what he's doing in their system. Uh, you know, I think Cooper said he's pretty loyal. He didn't leave when Ozzy Ging got fired. It seems like he wants to stay in Chicago, but you know, if I had a lot of money sitting around and I'm the Los Angeles Dodgers and I'm trying to figure out where to
0: spend it, I might spend on Don Cooper. Yeah, uh, it is interesting to think about because you would assume um, if if they have been relatively, you know, tight-lipped uh, with regard to uh, training regiments and other sort of practices, uh, especially among their pitchers, you know, their their starting pitchers, uh, y- you would think that even even if you can't get Don Cooper, then uh, you know, the next uh, the next guy in charge uh, would would not be a bad investment.
1: Right. Yeah. It's one of those things where I think, you know, we see sports as a copyright thing where someone does something that works and, you know, people try and figure out what it was and they try and hire people from that franchise. Uh, you would think that the White Sox pitching staff and their trainers and their pitching coaches uh, would be populating Major League Baseball up at this point. Uh, every assistant trainer who's ever worked under Cooper or anyone who's been involved with the organization should be, uh, you know, on retainer with someone trying to say, hey, here's what I saw them am doing. Let's try it here.
0: Right. Uh, now, listen uh – I want to stay within the uh, the AL Central um, because I think that you and I both know, uh, Dave Cameron, nothing drives traffic like discussion of the AL Central. That's really where the money is. But uh, let's, let's turn our attention for a second to the Cleveland Indians. Uh, the Cleveland Indians, uh, we released um, the end of, uh, towards the end of last week the last of our 30 team-by-team uh, Zips projections. The last team was, in fact, the Cleveland Indians. And um, now I know that when I was, uh, you know, um, for each team we do a, a depth chart, sort of like a graphic, just to give a, a very rough account of uh, of this team. Uh, two things surprised me about about Cleveland. First of all, um, when inputting or looking at their sort of uh, you know, their likely depth chart um, among their starters, they have actually actually like a pretty talented core of uh, starting field players, and that is something that surprised me. Uh, I know that you know Cleveland has had bright spots, certainly, with Carl Santana, for example, recent years, and Jason Kipnis probably playing uh, above what was originally expected of him by prospect analysts, um, but then, I, so that was pleasantly surprising, and then I turned my attention to the starting rotation, and um, it seemed as though, um, with the exception of what are expected to be relatively, you know, hopefully average seasons from Justin Masterson and Ubaldo Jimenez, um, who have both had better seasons than that in the past, uh, it was, uh, there was a pretty large dead spot. And I'm curious, I'm curious what, you, uh, how you, uh, what your reactions were, if you were surprised at all, uh, by, their, by either of these things, the um, receiving talent among the Cleveland Indians starting field players and then the uh, lack thereof among the, the starting rotation. Yeah, I was, I
1: was surprised. I mean, you know, I think uh, Santana and those Drupal Cabrera and Kemp I mean, these are, you know, solid, above-average players. But they've got a decent amount of notoriety. Uh, You know, all of them have ranked, I think, in the top 50 trade value at some point in the last couple of years. Um, so I don't think these guys are, like, super under the radar. Then you had Michael Bourne and Nick or who are two of the better free agents this winter, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the Indians have, you know, a decent core of above average players. They might not have anyone that you'd look at as a superstar, but uh, they've got, you know, a nice balanced mix of, of good position players. Uh, I was maybe a little surprised at how negative this was on the pitching. Uh, you know, see no rebound from Baldo Jimenez. Uh, you know, some of that could be the velocity that Dan McGorsi said has been working in the last few years and the fact that Jimenez's fastball has basically gone away. Uh, but you know, I think Justin Masterson was, it was pretty good two years ago. He was pretty lousy last year, but I just think he's going to be more bad than good or, you know, closer to what he was last year than what he was the year before. Um and then doesn't really like any of the young kids, including Trevor Bauer, who's gotten a lot of hype. I'm not a huge Trevor Bauer fan, but, uh, I was a little surprised at how negative it was on their pitching across the board. And I think it'll be interesting to see what the Indians do. Uh, given the fact that they've got the position players in place to contend, they did spend some money this winter. It seems like they want to try and at least, you know, make some kind of run at the wild card. Uh, but that pitching staff looks really looks like it could be a significant problem.
0: Well, and I, and I think that uh, Sullivan, Jeff Sullivan, uh, our colleague, uh, maybe wrote a piece uh, that would help us bridge the gap in the in the distinction between these uh, between our field players, um, or you know, offensive position players, and uh, the pitchers, which is that. It seems as though, in particular, as evidenced by the acquisition of Michael Bourne, um, but of course uh, Drew Stubbs is going to help this too, especially moving him into a quarter, moving Michael Brantley, who played a lot of center field last year, into a corner, is that uh, perhaps that uh, what, the, uh, what the Indians are looking at in terms of run prevention is they know that they might not necessarily get it from, from the starters themselves, but putting um, behind them a, a solid defensive team uh, might, might be a strategy uh, that, w- that would pay some dividends. Right, yeah, but I, mean, I don't think there's
1: any question that the Indians looked at their run prevention and said, We need to get better uh in, in stopping our opponents from scoring but they also differentiated in the that you know, they don't necessarily have to do that through acquiring better pitchers. Uh Stubbs and Morgan are definitely gonna help the run prevention and so it's just some natural regression to me. Indians were pretty terrible defensively last year. Um, but I don't think there's any question that their run prevention should improve uh while at the same time their pitching can be pretty bad. Like uh, uh, I think it'd be helpful for um, you know, people to kind of understand that their ERA can get a lot better without their pitching actually really being any better, simply because, you know, ERA doesn't just how you measure pitching.
0: Well, listen, so here's a question. um cause we were just talking about the White Sox. One thing that the White Sox uh, – one way they were able to make their team a lot better uh, last season was by having – I mean, at some level this was an advantage, was that they had a to- an entire, like, hole at third base, Right. Uh, I think that, you know, there was some idea of starting Brent Morrell, and I actually t- uh, uh, thought that was a good idea. Uh, that did not work out. Uh, they had some other options at third base during the course of the season. Um, but then they replaced that hole, which was, I think, you know, third base had posted for them like a half a win or a full win below replacement level. They replaced it uh, with Kevin Euclid, which even if you don't have Kevin, the best possible version of Kevin Euclid that has existed in the past – it still uh, represented a pretty market upgrade, and you know probably helped them down the stretch. Uh, now, I'm curious with regard to Cleveland. They have a de- I mean, you know, they have some pieces in their rotation: Jimenez, Masterson, and I, and I neglected to mention Brett Myers. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what he does in, um, as a starter for Cleveland. Is it, is there at some level? Is it the same sort of advantage to have a hole in your starting rotation that if you're within? Um, If you're within sight of a a playoff spot, you can replace that. Or is it harder to upgrade starters at the deadline than it is to upgrade field uh, field or position players?
1: I think it's actually probably a bigger advantage to a hole in your rotation simply because of the variance around. Projecting pitchers. I mean, you know, not just from health, but just pitchers are weird. I mean, you know, Cliff Lee runs a cutter and goes from being a number five starter to one of the best pitchers in baseball. No one can see it coming. It's just a thing that happens. And so I think, you know, if you leave more room and you collect more pitchers and instead of having five guys that you're locked into, you have, you know, nine guys who you're just kind of watching and evaluating and you can respond to uh, changes in their performance, it gives you a better opportunity to look at it and say, hey, look, you know, nice team. Masazaka who used to be horrible, and now he's healthy, and he's, you know, still pitches really slow, but maybe he's good now, and maybe he's, you know, better than he used to be at least. And I think the uh, nice thing about having this kind of rotation that has some serious weaknesses at the back end is it gives you the flexibility to, you know, pick on a guy who uh, might be having a breakthrough season in the minor leagues, but maybe you can pick up for a song, I think there's ways to improve your pitching rotation in season much more so than improving, you know, a regular position player. I think there's, uh, um, you know, just not that many everyday available hitters, uh, during the season. Where if you, if you need a left fielder or you need a third baseman, I think there's a, there's a pretty small pool to pick from. And usually you're not going to have as many guys, uh, just, you know, tinkering with something, learning a new, you know, batting stance and having a breakthrough season. Where with pitchers, there's always kind of a, you know, pool of guys who might be learning a cutter or whatever it is, uh, you could try and
0: look out and, you know, get 150 good innings from. Now, um, I'm curious as to uh, re- regarding that sort of approach, the idea that, um, you know, maybe the uh, uh, pitchers uh, will demonstrate um, more variance um, re- relative to their mean projection. Um, I'm curious as to how you feel about the twin strategy entering this season. Now, there are not uh, necessarily a Many things uh, to like about the Twins entering the 2013 season. One thing they have done, though, is they've uh, they have some players returning, and they've brought in a couple of previously broken arms. I- I'm curious what you think about this. They have, uh, of course, they have um, uh, Gibson. They have Kyle Gibson, who I think is returning yeah. from some manner of arm injury. Uh, they're also bringing to camp both uh, uh, Mike Pelfrey, who um, from the Twins signed this offseason, and then also uh, Rich Harden. They're all due back at some level, uh, and I think they're all returning. Uh, let's see, Gibson and Palfrey from Tommy John surgery and uh, Harden. I don't know what it was, some sort of arm thing. With Harden, it's been –
1: Rich Harden. To
0: the... Richard, right, right. Um, but I'm curious what you think about this strategy, and if you could think off the top of your head, uh, no pressure, of course, uh, any other teams that might be utilizing this sort of volume approach. And I know that you've, you know, you've said good things about teams that pursue previously broken pitchers in any case.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think San Diego's uh, been a pretty good example of this, and I think they're still doing it. You know, they signed Freddy Garcia. Uh, they've got Andrew Kaschner coming back off, you know, multiple injuries and his health issues. Uh, you know, they got Robbie and Robbie Irwin. They've got a bunch of young guys who have some history, uh, injury history as well. So I think, you know, they're probably even a better example than the Twins. I think the Twins, in this case, uh ended up with some guys coming off of injuries just because they didn't want to spend any money. I and mean, they were basically went into full scale rebuilding and then just looked around and was like, Well, oh, we need some arms. Kevin is available, Mike is available. We're kinda not wanting to give anyone long term equipment, so we don't really want to spend any cash. So what can we get for three or four million? You're basically gonna get a bad or broken pitcher. Um so I'm not sure that I would say that from my perspective that I see the twins pursuing this, you know, find value strategy. I think the Kevin Correa signing indicates that, you know, they kind of going the opposite direction, where they find a bad pitcher with very little upside to a two-year contract simply because they were scared of giving those innings to a young kid or to someone who might uh, have some pretty large variance around his projection. And it uh, seems to me like they're trying to fill innings more than they are trying to play the upside game. And, you know, I think what San Diego is doing is probably a better example of this than, than Minnesota.
0: Um Uh, Another thing to consider with regard to projections is, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, um, I mean, you are the editor of the site, so uh, you probably have. Uh, Last couple – or over the last week, uh, just before the weekend and and today, uh, looking at some uh, rookies who have received some uh, particularly favorable projections. uh, In the first case, um, uh, last Thursday, I guess it was, uh, um, from Zips. In this case, uh, today, Monday, from Steamer. Um, I want to look at the Steamer projections for a second because – the steamer projections also include playing time projections from uh, the fan projection system that we run or facilitate, uh, mostly I should say, uh, at the site. Um, and this is interesting because it's uh, it takes it's taking into account um, what the uh, what the sort of innings will be, and then is sort of uh, mixing with the the sort of raw steamer projections uh, to produce you know. Different rates, but then also uh, you know a total an overall war projection. Uh, first of all, and maybe I'll ask you, I'll ask you this: What sort of biases might this be open to if that's the case? Are there going to be? Uh, I know that frequently the fan projections are a bit on the optimistic side because you have teams or fans of certain teams generally projecting their players more often than others. Is is that a factor?
1: Yeah, I mean I think what we see is the over projection on the fans uh projections is on rate stats much more than on playing time stats. I think in general fans have a pretty good handle on what, you know, reasonable amount of playing time is. Uh and they generally understand the depth chart pretty well. Uh we might not know the answers in every case, so sometimes they have to guess because there are positions that aren't, you know, figured out necessarily. Uh, but I think overall, uh the fans projected playing times stack up well or often do even better than um, you know, algorithm-projected playing times. And I think part of that is just, you know, the fact that fans can read the papers and read what managers have to say and they can gather clues from uh, public statements. And um, so they have more information. You know, something like Vips that just has to look at, you know, past injury time and past playing time and say, oh, well, this guy was a reliever last year, so I think he's going to release half the time and start half the time. Well, you know, in Chris Medlin's case, we're pretty sure he's not going to work out on the bullpen this year. So the fan projection for the evening, so it is probably a better bet than Vips. So I think using the... Uh, crowdsourced um information, which is probably an improvement. And I think, you know, yeah, personally, when, I, when we look at evaluated projection systems, I'd love to see them kind of evaluated on these two separate ideas of how well did they do forecasting rate stats and how well did they do forecasting playing time. And, you know, I think probably the best overall projection system would use some kind of uh, algorithm math Thing to get to the rate stats and some kind of crowdsourced public information to get to the
0: playing time. Right, and it should be noted, for example, with regard to Zim, Zimborski's Zips projections, he doesn't even uh, he doesn't even pretend to project playing right. time. Right, and I think yeah. that I think that that's one strength of Zips and, and Zimborski's projections is that he's he's very clear about uh, the limits of his projection system as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's you know, he's transparent about the fact that, like, this is what I'm doing, and this is something that I recognize as a limitation of my system. And, uh, that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, when we're doing root mean squared error testing on these systems, it's, it's wise to look at, you know, rate stats and playing time stats separately, because, you know, there's no point penalizing Zemorski for not doing something well that he doesn't even claim to be doing.
0: Right. Now, uh, just looking at these, uh, over these rookies, I know, I've noticed that, uh, Jackie Bradley, uh, Jackie Bradley is an outfield prospect with the Red Sox. Um, he he's been uh, well nicely acquitted by by these. He had a little uh, he was excellent in High A last year, even relative to league, etc. Uh, he had a little bit of trouble in Double A, but generally uh, also adds um, to uh, you know a rather mature offensive approach, uh, good outfield defense. Um, I'm I'm curious in particular because not only have Jackie Bradley's projections been been you know uh, decent sort of in the um, pro- you know probably Two wins to, you know, um, something like that for every 600-plate appearances. um, Maybe a little better than that, um, both by steamer and zips. I'm curious about this in particular because the Red Sox this offseason signed Johnny Gomes, who has typically in his career, um, when he's been allowed to play, has uh, has been known as a um, particularly good hitter against lefties, um, but maybe having uh, platoon difficulties. And uh, I think, you know, some uh, huge percentage of his plate appearances last season, which was his best in a while, if, if maybe ever, uh, he had uh, maybe like 60% of his plate appearances against left-handers. And yet the Red Sox signed him to a two-year contract. Uh, he could probably make the money back because it was only for $10 million. But I'm curious, uh, your opinion on this, is, is, is does Jackie Bradley get playing time this year? Um, and if so, is it, is it in a platoon with, with Johnny Gomes?
1: Uh I don't think Bradley's going to see the major league much this year. I mean I think just beyond the fact that um, you know projections for minor leaguers are a little bit shittier than projections to major league players and that we should be a little less confident in in Bradley's projection. Uh there's also the the question of whether playing a slightly below average or, you know, maybe average major league player uh early in his career when he's occurring service time, uh is even a good idea. I mean if you if you can have Johnny Gomes for five million dollars Producing in a not terribly dissimilar rate, uh, you know, than, than Jackie Bradley, but at the same time, you can have Bradley sitting in the minor leagues, uh, allowing him to further develop into an even better player and then gain extra team control in the future. That's probably a better outcome than rushing Bradley to the majors just because he's equally good at films, uh, maybe even slightly better right now. I think, you know, to justify giving up that service time and increasing his costs and arbitration, uh, you have to get a real upgrade, and I think this is one of those Cases where it doesn't look like Bradley would be a monstrous upgrade over what they already have on the roster. You know, they also have Daniel Nava. They've got some pieces who aren't replacement-level guys. Uh, I think that gives them the ability to keep Bradley in the, in the minors. Uh, you know, this is I wouldn't say this isn't a case like Kansas City where they have Jeff Francoeur, was basically a replacement-level guy. The little Miners could have been a drastic upgrade. I'd say Bradley's probably a push or something close to a push to what they already have. So in that case, uh, you might as well just gain the extra service time and development time let him cool his heels,
0: and the miners, and you will know, be ready to replace Jacoby right next year. Okay, uh, noted, noted. Uh, and uh, one last point before we go, we we discussed uh, the the crowd's ability um, and their usefulness in projecting playing time. Um, uh, looking now, now uh, of course, uh, this past off season we had, uh, or I should say, like basically right after World Series was over, uh, we had uh, fangrass readers. We invited them. Uh, many of them um, ch- chose to do this. We invited them to. Uh, project uh, salary or you know likely contracts that free agents would receive both in years and average annual value uh looking at the numbers uh, you know most of those players have been signed most of the players that were crowdsourced and uh, the numbers are um, f- 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 the fans have produced the readers have produced are uh quite accurate i don't know if you if you got a chance to take a look but uh uh did in- we talk about those last week i don't know did we I think we.
1: I think this is how we ended the podcast last week. I feel like this is a repeat.
0: Uh This is a repeat, actually. Uh Readers, yeah. <laughs> readers have found their way to repeat. We did. Are you
1: sure? Did we talk about it? I, I'm pretty sure I, this is the last question of last week's podcast. We'll have to like go back and compare, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this is. The did Michael Bourne? I, I
0: think Michael Bourne has signed since then. Is that a fact? Or when did Michael Bourne sign?
1: Michael Bourne signed last Monday. Right. So I think. It was either he had just signed, and we were talking about it because of that, or he signed like an hour after we finished the
0: podcast or something. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, we'll say a word about it now for uh, for people who listened who <laughs> didn't get a chance to listen. It's accurate. It's mostly accurate. Yeah, I, I mean,
1: I think the overall it was pretty accurate, except for on the high end. I mean, it, it missed a, pretty badly on Hamilton and Granke and kind of the, the guys at the top end. But, I mean, you know, when you're talking about the difference between 125 and $140 million, uh, you know, teams probably are a little bit more willing to say, well, whatever, another $5 million, when you're talking about, you know, if Raul LaBagna's another $5 million is doubling his salary. So, you know, I think it's easier to be accurate on the smaller deals, which the fans were, and it's easier to miss big on the bigger deals, which the fans did. I think overall, we see that the fans undershot the big deals a little bit uh then probably, you know, didn't quite account entirely for the new television money coming into baseball,
0: but uh, overall,
1: they did a really good job.
0: Yeah, and um- would that also uh, with, re- with regard to missing, uh, does that have anything to do with when contracts were signed? I feel like it's happened in the past, and this might be this is totally anecdotal, I'm sure, but uh, that larger contracts or that players are maybe um, given more money earlier in the off season and then as uh, the off season goes by that maybe we see uh, less dollars per expected win?
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, the later contracts are are almost certainly uh, a better deal in terms of dollars per win. Uh, essentially, the teams make like a trade-off. At the beginning of the year, or the beginning of the offseason, they can pay a little bit more and have their pick of whoever they want. Uh, and at the end of the offseason, they can pay a little bit less and just get the leftovers. So, you know, the Indians, it wasn't necessarily, you know, hot after Michael Bourne at what he wanted. But when his price came down, they were like, hey, neat, we'll take Michael Bourne at $12 million per year. Uh, they probably couldn't have had him for that price in, you know, November when he was still dreaming about 15 or $16 million a year, maybe even on a longer deal. So, um, I don't think there's any question. It, you pay a little bit more to get the pick of the litter, uh, and you pay a little bit less at the end if you're just you know shopping uh, when players are looking around, realizing they don't have a team, and you know kind of need to get into spring training.
0: Yeah, not a bad price for Michael Bourne. I mean, obviously, I, and I think you've addressed this that um, that may, maybe players of his profile, uh, especially having very little on the the end of power, it, it might be problematic, right? Because defense um, um, defense deteriorates, I think, more quickly than other. Skills. is that affect?
1: Well, it peaks early. I think that's the main thing. His defense peaks at uh, 22 or 23. So even though it doesn't look like it, Michael Bourne's defense has been in decline for quite a while, uh, and it's probably further from his prime than his hitting skills uh it's not even so much the low power. The low power can work. It's the low power and really high strikeout rates. So, you know, one of the reasons, like, Marco Scudero has been a really good player is he never misses. I mean, you know, we talked about this a decent amount last year when he hit 400 for the Giants for the last couple of months of the season, including the playoffs. Is Marco Scudero has an absurdly high contact rate, which can offset a lot of his uh, loss of power. So he basically makes up in volume what he doesn't have in thump. Uh, Michael Bourne both doesn't have power and strikes out a lot and there just aren't that many guys who are good hitters who do those two things
0: Alright, uh, Dave Cameron it appears as though you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio, How's it feel? Uh,
1: it feels like I only analyze like 93% of baseball
0: Okay, do. that is the, uh, that will be the title of this post then
1: Alright, yes, yeah, so we'll leave the extra 7% for Jonah Carey's follow up
0: Yeah, that's right, well that would be uh, maybe if he writes uh, what um, three and a half books or something like this right that would be for uh, two and a half more books I guess that would uh, that would bring us up to seven uh, anyway yeah. Uh, yeah Dave Cameron uh, thank you very much for uh, for enlightening us on this edition of Fangraphs Audio my
1: pleasure as always
0: alright that's managing editor Dave Cameron Carson late, this has been Fangraphs Audio